This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Rebecca Buchanan, a host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture, and I'm here today with Sibby O'Sullivan, who is the author of My Private Lenin, Explorations from a Fan Who Never Screamed. Sibby, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Can you start by telling us a little bit about how this book came about, how you started writing about your life and John Lennon? Well, um, I, I think Lenin had always been with me f- f- since 1963, and then obviously when they took over America in 1964. Um, but I didn't ever have time. I didn't ever let it coalesce until I was retired. I had taught at the University of Maryland in their honors college for over 30 years. And in 2015, I retired. And I just thought it's now or never that I should write this book. I wasn't quite sure what shape it was going to take, but I knew it was going to be personal. And I had also, um, starting in the 90s, read a number of wonderful books, some of which I weren't aware of, about John Lennon and the Beatles. And they were quite different from the books I had read earlier about them, and and certainly different uh, from the magazine's uh, the contemporary magazines uh, of Beatlemania. And I just thought, I need to do this. So I started a program of steady reading, but uh, most importantly, a steady listening. I just got the CDs, put my headphones on, and I was just transposed in a way that surprised me. I had always been transposed uh, and knowing that I love them because they changed my life. I love their music. But hearing them as a full adult, I, I don't, and I had heard them throughout the years. It wasn't just like going back after a 30-year hiatus, but I was just transformed. And so I just started to write these essays. And it took a while because... I wasn't sure where I was going, but once I figured I can lay out my love and interest in John Lennon according to very important, uh, uh, an important trajectory of my own life, that's how I could privatize him if I could. And that's what I wanted to do. I know I had nothing more to say about the Beatles' history other than my own experiences of seeing them in August 1965 in the Ed Sullivan studio. Um, You know, I was one of 700 lucky people in that audience that got to see them. So I kind of have 
that small status, but compared to the great biographies and the forensic accounts of their recordings and everything, I couldn't contribute to the Lennon or the Beatles bibliography except by making John Lennon my John Lennon. And I just started writing and, of course, rewriting and rewriting again and double-checking, and it all came together. And uh, I'm pleased. I'm pleased that it did. One of the things, sort of the foundation that you start with, and you wait until the end to show the photograph, is that photograph you have. Um, So can you talk a little bit? It's interesting because I was interested in the photograph, and and you talked a little bit about um, sort of sitting and listening to the music, and you talk a little bit about that, like how do we listen to music? Um, But could you start by talking a bit about that photograph and what that meant and how that... Yeah. Well, it was August 1965, and my girlfriend Betty, her father worked for the FCC, and he got us tickets to go and see the afternoon rehearsal of what would then be televised on September the 12th, uh, the last time that the Beatles actually appeared live on Ed Sullivan's stage. So quite exciting for two teenage girls and the parents her parents drove us up there i had an instamatic camera i don't know instamatic cameras had just come out one one touch is all you need a little flash cube and of course we you weren't supposed to take uh shots uh you know photographs during uh, the rehearsal which was a, a dress rehearsal the the first one of the day but some people did and i have scattered memories of that afternoon. I don't know when or why I took the photo that I did, um, but it must have been because John was not actively singing and up against a white background. Not that I was thinking as a photographer, oh, man in black suit up against a white background. And I just took it and then I put it away because I was afraid that somebody would come and take my camera. And then, of course, I wouldn't have the photograph. Um, And I developed it, and I knew that I had a treasure, which I then hid away for many, many years. And it really wasn't until, again, late 80s or 90s that I started to meet people that loved the Beatles as much as I did and, and knew their history sometimes even better than I did. But I met a gentleman who was um, involved with Beatles memorabilia. And I told him, well, I have this photograph and nobody knows about it. And he goes, well, he wants to see it. And so I showed him the photo and also the ticket stub that I kept. And uh, he said, you know, that photograph is, is worth some money. I could sell it for you. I said, no. But I said, I'll consider selling this, the ticket stub. You always need money. And um, I liked him. I trusted him. Um, I kind of have a regret that I sold anything from that afternoon, but I will never part with that. In looking at the photograph while I was writing the book, I could put some meaning to it. I even projected that that John's situation in that that particular afternoon the day before they went to um, perform at Shea Stadium. They had no idea 
how large, 56,000 people. They were helicoptered into Shea Stadium. No one could hear anybody. They couldn't hear anybody on the stage. You couldn't hear themselves. And I see the photograph because the camera's there. He's backed up against a wall. He's he's not doing anything. We, I mean, he's got his hands on his guitar, but we, I've had people look at it, guitar players. What's he doing? Oh, he's playing, you know, but he's, you know, he's not. And I see it as trapped. You know, that's, that's how I wanted to interpret that photograph that, that he's trapped because Shea Stadium, as much as they liked it, they knew that was going to be so fundamentally different from the person to person, uh, contact that they always had and had always had from Liverpool days. And of course, within the year, they stopped touring almost to the day in 1966 after Candlestick Park in San, in California. It was too much. George said, I'm out. The other boys said, I'm with you. And of course, because they stopped touring, what do we have? We have this artistic blossoming this this unpredictable, no one could predict what was going to happen. No one could predict Sgt. Pepper. Uh, you know, Rubber Soul itself was, you know, a revelation. But after that, in the four years left from 1966 to 1970 before they broke up, were tremendous years of great artistic and musical and personal uh, achievement and advancement. And so I've got that little moment, I think, where John was on the cusp of something. Of course, he was always on the cusp of something. Uh, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, you know, I can't help but reading the photograph, right? Seeing it as um, something that he could maybe step away from, that I captured and he could step away from. I'm glad you like the photograph or if I, you know, you have to blow it up on your computer screen. Um, if you blew it up any more on the page, the pixels, you know, would begin to disintegrate, but I could send you a link of that photograph and you blow it up to full screen on your page, uh, on your uh, laptop, you know, on your, what am I trying The desktop there, your screen, that's the word I want. And you'll see, you can, it's much, much better. No, I, I, I did love that because the photograph comes up right throughout. And so, but you wait until the end and then you see the photograph. So I did love the juxtaposition of reading about something that was so, um, so special and sacred. And then we get to, we get to see that at the end. Um, but yes, I, and I, I like that tie in throughout. And what, as you're talking, one of the things in Chan being trapped, another thing that I was really, I would really love to hear about is it's so difficult. Uh, the narrative of John Lennon and who John Lennon is, right, is not one, right? We have the one hand, we have John Lennon, who the fans adored and who was a genius and people loved. And the other hand, we have a really different and really sort of, um, not so nice, John Lennon. No, an ugly John Lennon. Yeah, and, and I often say, my um, my husband is a huge Beatles fan, and um, I often ask, say to him, like, if John Lennon had not died, would we ha what would we think of John Lennon now, right? Like, you know, it's a, one of those conversations because he is he was really muddied. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about that and and writing and thinking about 
Do you well, I had, yeah, I mean, it, it's a wonderful question. And I think it's, it's a question that you can ask of the people that you love in music. I mean, you could ask, I'd be curious to know what your husband would have to say about that, especially since, you know, he's a man and, and, you know, I'm a woman, you know, what about John Lennon's ugly side? Uh, and it's something that lovers of literature, you know, always wrestle with because what do you do when you find out you love somebody's work? But you find out that they're, you know, less than than ideal. But you know, aren't we all? But I wrestled with that, and and the moment of of kind of coming home of of where I, of, of reckoning for me was after I the first time after I read Cynthia Lennon's second memoir she wrote about John, simply called John. And I've always liked Cynthia Lennon, and I feel for her. But after reading her, her rather measured but very candid um, history of, of her relationship with John, uh, I, I saw another John Lennon. I, I saw a man who, you know, mistreated her. Um, he hit her once, uh, and he apologized for that. But nonetheless, he hit her once. Um, you know, if, Cynthia stayed with him until she discovered Yoko sitting in her bathroom, uh, bathrobe in her kitchen. Um, and then she said, that's that. I've, I've got to you know, get out of here and get divorced. And of course, it was a terrible time during the divorce proceedings. John was, was very uh, nasty toward her and Yoko was as well. And Cynthia got very little money. And what do you do with this? Um, and what you do with it, I think, is recognize a kind of humanity that as ugly as it is, is very real. We can not excuse it, but we can certainly trace it back to everything from first and foremost, his mother's death, uh, the abandonment of his father, uh, even to the sort of status quo, if you will, of what Northern English men were like. You know, it was not uncommon uh, to have some roughness going along in marriages and the entitlement of, of being a man and the diminishing of the spouse or the girlfriend. Um, and Cynthia knew that and, and aligned with it, you know, uh, but that doesn't mean that, that she liked it. I think, though, after we consider that um, and after we consider even uglier moments in John Lennon's life, like beating up the disc jockey Bob Wooler from Liverpool at a drunken party. It was Paul's 21st birthday party. And Wooler had um, intimated that uh, John and Brian uh, had become lovers when they had taken a trip to Spain, Brian Epstein. Uh, the Beatles manager and John took him down and kicked him and beat him in. And if he wasn't pulled off of him, he could have done lasting damage as it was. Wooler was in the hospital. John felt horrible about that. And Cynthia witnessed this and, and she, and he said to her, what have I done? What have I done? I will never do this again. And he never did. Um, what do we do with that? I think what we do with that is recognize in the terms of his entire life, which of course was cut short, was that this was a man who changed. 
that this was a man who kept his promises. He never hit Cynthia again. He recognizes that he was not a good father to his first son, Julian. He recognizes, as he even mentions in song lyrics, that, you know, he treated his women poorly. And by the time mid-70s, with living with Yoko and loving her and having another child and recognizing certain things about himself, I mean, we could say that he became enlightened. He changed. He became a better man. He was, and I, I really want to make a point that I think Yoko, we really have to give her credit for this. I mean, she didn't take any shit off of John and, uh, and Cynthia did, but you know, different women, different times. Um, but John changed. And do we then say, well, he's an evil person for what he did, or do we recognize the change and the intelligence behind that change. It wasn't a change for publicity. It wasn't like an apology, the kinds of apologies we get today from our celebrities. Oh, you know, no, this was a deep, thoughtful transition that took a while, okay, because he drank heavily, you know, when he was away from Yoko and he he always, I mean, he's on record saying, I always need some sort of drug. So we can assume that even in his more placid days, you know, he was still imbibing something one way or the other. But, you know, I don't think he was shooting heroin. He got clean off that. I mean, he's an imperfect person. Um, but what do you do with that? You make peace with it. If you, would, if you love somebody, and I love John Lennon, you make, you say, I love them, although not necessarily because you love the old those. And I think that 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 has to happen with fandom as well. You know, I love Ernest Hemingway. I love, I love William Faulkner. Uh, You know, I, I, I love Shakespeare and he didn't treat his wife all that well. He left her alone. I just, what are you going to do? They're, they're human beings, but you make peace with it. And I think that he would be a good example for people that wonder how a change in male behavior can be for the better. And what does it take for a man to change, especially in a culture, not so much ours now, though we have trouble with men now in a way I think that's kind of new and disturbing. But for men of John's era, how do we... I don't know. I don't want to use the word retrain them, but open up, open them up, allow them to open up. And I think that's one of John's gifts in his lyrics, in his life, and in this interview. He is a man who opened up. And I think that that is a very rare thing and that we have to understand that as a gift. Not not to say that he didn't dissemble here and there or change his mind, but compared to so many other famous people that want to maintain a kind of solidity of self that may not be authentic, John, I think, was after some sort of authenticity, which doesn't discount perhaps hypocrisy along the way, but he was after some sort of, of authenticity and that, that 
may that meant that he had to open up the truth about his own life. And so you get those wonderful and very telling songs about his mother, about Yoko, about the pain that he suffered. And I see only um, a high regard for a person who can do that. And it's a real shame that he died because I think that he would have offered a new way of being and a new way of creating because he wanted to continue to create. Wanted to write children's stories for one thing. And we don't have Mick Jagger writing, you know, children's stories. We don't have a lot of people. You know, he he was aging in a very interesting way, I think. That's I spoke a long time about that. I I'm always open to other people's opinions and I am curious about um you know, your husband's take on it. Um, my academic specialty was American masculinity. And um, so even though I'm not teaching, I'm, and I'm actually, I'm glad I'm not teaching today because I'd have to redo my syllabus, you know, <laughs> because so much other crap is coming. My students would say, is it ever going to get better? I said, yes, it's getting better. We, you know, you're getting better. You're more, and now all this other crap is coming. So I would say all in all, if you love John Lennon, you got to take him good and bad. But he changed. There's no question about that. He changed. And so one of the things, too, as you were talking and what you just said there is that idea of sort of masculinity and American masculinity and change. And you've sort of woven throughout your relationships, right? And the relationships that you've had with men. And and so can you talk a little bit about um, doing that and thinking about that in, in, in relating it in this context of thinking about John and your relationship with John? Um, well, I think, um, yeah, and, and I'm glad you picked up on that because I wasn't really aware of how John had sort of set me on a track of attraction, if you will. Um, and I, I remember writing like voices, men's voices are incredibly uh, important to me, especially if I want to partner with a man or, or more importantly, even live a day in and day life. How aggravating would it be if you were married to somebody whose voice you couldn't stand? I mean, drive me up the wall, you know. Uh, and there's some guys that I've met along my life it, that their voice just just was it, you know, the roadblock was set up. So I think I can attribute that to John's voice. I, I really can, because I never much thought about voices, men's voices before. Um, and I was a big TV watcher and movie watcher and listener, you know, records and stuff, but John's voice just did something to me. Um, I loved his face as well, but his hands, I was always attracted to his hands and I remain attracted to men's hands. And, and along the years, I found out that other women are also attracted to men's hands. I was flabbergasted, but I shouldn't have been when I was researching my book. And I found out that there is a, a web page um, dedicated solely to John Lennon's legs, John Lennon's thighs in particular. And I don't know whether this is um, a gay thing. Uh, my thought is, is, is that both men and women um, 
are using this. And, you know, I've looked at it a few times and doggone it. I mean, the, they're there. The pictures are there of his legs. But the way that the people talk about these legs or say, check this out, or I can't stand it, or I'll oh, be still my heart. I'm thinking, boy, they've really done, you know, an anatomy lesson of, of Lenin, uh, which makes sense to me, but I just never thought that somebody would launch a program and that there would be a book about it. I mean, a, a, you know, a, a group about it. So I'm not alone. I was good to find out that I wasn't alone and, and this sort of oozing that I had described, you know, about Lenin. Um, but this is what we do, don't we? I mean, we, we live in our bodies and we appreciate the bodies of other things. But perhaps the most important thing was that I realized that I was, uh, I, I, I'm an artist myself in the sense that I'm a writer, but that when I look back at, at my love life, if we call it that, it's chock full of artists, musicians. I mean, I live with the, my partner for the last 30 years is, you know, a musician. My father was a musician. I, I think that I am gravitate, I gravitate toward creative men versus, I don't know. I mean, how do you make these dichotomies? Businessmen? I mean, you know, I, mean I just, uh, or, you know, um, I respect working class men, especially men that, I mean, my brother is a master carpenter and builder and, and that's creative. So I think the creativity, uh, the man who is creative, the man who has a passion, the man who follows that passion, it could be a, a record collector, um, somebody that knows something very deeply. Uh, I'm attracted to that. But if you look through the, the men that I've had relationships with, um, they're frequently writers or musicians. And I, I would love to have a relationship with John Lennon if he, you know, he was around. I don't even know if I, how long I'd last with him. But I, I think that realizing all of those things at a fundamental age of 15, uh, that launched me. Whereas I could have, well, I don't think I could have uh, gone for surfers or you know, business types or something, though they were available. But the Beatles, I think, changed the trajectory of female desire in a very interesting way, a very full way. And I think it opened up a way for men to be differently desired. They could now grow their hair long. They could now wear those tight pants that the Englishmen wore and always did wear, you know, with their cod pieces and their, their, you know, white hoses in the 18th century, you know, and, and they knew what they were doing. And, you know, I mentioned about suddenly we are looking through the pants of, you know, the male package, if you will. And uh, straight American men got that right away. And straight American women got that right away, too. <laughs> Yes, you're right. You talk about that sort of the um, innocence, I guess in a way it's innocence, right? The innocence of you and Betty, right? Betty, That's her yeah. name, right? And, and that and and wanting to have some kind of sexual identity, but really not having that sexual identity. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and 
I have to say, I love how you refer to your partner um, with that acronym. What is it? Um, <laughs> the man that I love. Or right. <laughs> Who I sometimes want to stab with a barbecue fork. Yes. <laughs> All of this but is true. You feel that way, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that chapter is um, pretty much verbatim, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and the argument the, has calmed down, you know. But uh, I love him, and he loves me, and I've learned a great deal from him. And, and I admire him because he's just, um, a self-made man, and he followed his talent. He'd been working, you know, gigs since he was 14, and um, now he's 76. And, you know, we play games sometimes. I, I find some obscure name of a jazz person. I mean, I mean obscure, like the second baseman on, you know, second basis on, you know, Mingus's band for six months in Detroit, you know. And I'll I'll call out this name. I'll be looking at my computer and he'll be looking at the television and I'll go, I got a name for you. And he goes, okay. And I'll call out the name. With few exceptions, I mean, maybe in the years I've been doing this, maybe three times I could say gotcha, you know. But it, like, there it is, there it is. Or I, I name a song, you know, from the Great American Songbook. I can't, you know, not only does he know the song, he knows the changes to it, he knows who wrote it, he knows who first sang it, and it's like, I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it. But he doesn't like the Beatles, he likes some of Paul's songs and he likes two or three of Lennon's he likes come together because it's got a good groove you know but that that debate if you want to call it about uh Aeolian cadences that really happened and it <laughs> I knew I had to write about that <laughs> because this is what I live with, you know, as I'm you know giving him the most thorough academic beautifully written account, Ian McDonald's account of this. Uh, and sure enough, he goes down in the basement and brings up this book. And all he had to have done was say, look, it's not a cadence. The guy's wrong. But, you know, it built from there and something, you know. So anyhow, it's been a trip, but... I, <laughs> Like I said, you take you take the man in his totality, and I live with a musician who plays the flute for me every day. Or plays the flute, but I get the benefit of that, and um, not every woman has that benefit. <laughs> so I think you know, in this book, it's a series of essays, so they fit together. But you can also sort of take them one by one if you wanted right, to, yeah. right? Um, but for many reasons, I my favorite is at, towards the end, the beautiful boy, beautiful girl, uh, boy, girl, right? And I think um, thinking about the complexities of motherhood, I always have had a, I always felt bad for Julian Lennon as well. So there's oh, yeah. a, right a bit of that in there. So can you talk a little bit? I mean, and you talk about motherhood through, sort of throughout, but I'd love for you to talk a bit more about, you know, writing about motherhood, writing about that in comparison and thinking about... Um, yeah, let me John get that. Um, I got to turn the light on here. Let me uh, get the... Uh, oh, okay. So the very end of it, 
of the the beautiful boy, beautiful girl. Well, that whole essay in general, I really love. Well, that's um, good to know because you know this one gave me some trouble. Um, I mean, it all, it, they, you know, you know how writing is. It, it's all sort of troublesome, but um, I, I really felt for the the difficulties of Cynthia and Julian, and I admire Cynthia. I mean, she raised a, a beautiful boy in Julian. I mean, I, um, it's sort of sad to, for Julian to recount his experiences, but again, Julian is telling the truth, and more power to that. I also, when I found out, and I didn't find this out when Yoko first came on the scene back in 1968, that she had a custody battle with her first husband, Tony Cox, and that he took the child. I had gone through that, you know, um, starting in 1973 until 1975 with my own custody battle. And I truly, truly believe that had it not been for my mother's death and my father telling the judge that the second time we went in for custody, that I would not have gained custody of my daughter. And that would have been a horrible, horrible thing for both of us. Um, so I understand Yoko, I think. And I'm wondering whether it, it was her own loss of her daughter uh, not in the difficulty of not knowing where she was for a while. I mean, fine. They, they worked it all out. I mean, there's photographs of Julian and, um, Kyoko, I think is Yoko's daughter's name, going on vacation. But for a while there, Yoko didn't know. And it was off and on. And, and Cox was on a revenge trip. And I think that Yoko might have taken out some revenge on Cynthia by, you know, saying, threatening to take Julian away from her and things like that. So I understand all these, um, the, the rigmarole of what happens between parents and children, especially mothers and children. Um, but I, I think that, uh, Sean was well cared for. And I think that beautiful boy and, and watching the wheels, especially cause I like that song as well, is so beautiful that a man like John Lennon with his reputation as the tough guy, as the, the wife beater, as, you know, other things like that, as the rock and roller, that he would write a song that is as gentle and loving and sincere as Beautiful Boy, and that he would, uh, I, I see that linked also with Watching the Wheels, uh, that, that becoming a father again was his way, I think, his, his a gentle entry out of the persistence of being this rock and roll star. So I think he gained love by giving love. And I think he learned something by letting Yoko, who he called mother, loving him and accepting the, the very kind of cloying love that he had for her because she recognized the loss of Julia, his mother. 
And so you go back sort of like to this original wound, this loss of the mother, and in horrible ways for him, and at crucial times in his life. He lost her two times when he was three, and even before that when Mimi came for him, and then 17, when he knew he could have a mother, you know, and he would spend time with her. So the loss of the mother, and then regaining that through loving your own child and accepting the love and being so open about the need that he had to be loved with Yoko. I think that it becomes a healing thing, but you go through hell getting there, I think. And again, this was a moment of vulnerability for him and of great openness and one that he he was not shy. John was not shy in talking about what he tried to do to alleviate the pain, drugs, scream therapy, all of which he in some way, uh, well, he rejected the scream therapy, ended up, you know, sort of dismissing uh, that because he didn't want it to be a publicity ploy. But what really healed him was the love of the son, his second son, Sean and the love for Yoko, that he had, she was seven years older than he was. Cynthia was older than John as well. Um, I don't know if you read, what what are you gonna read in that? Uh, but I tell you, I, I don't know, I don't know a man who's lost his father that doesn't still long for his father. I mean, the loss of a parent is huge in somebody's life and it changes you. So John mothered, he mothered Sean, and he needed mothering from Yoko. And I'm all for that, if that helped him, and it did. And out of that, he created new stuff, new songs. And that sort of relationship, John's relationship with women, but also sort of the changing relationship, or the and the changing relationship and the changing um roles of women, especially from the 60s to the 70s to the 80s, you sort of get at throughout. And I thought that was really interesting, too, because um, there's a bit of complexity there. And there's a right. It, it's not just cut and dry. Like, yes, women all of a sudden got all these great, you know. No, <laughs> no. Yeah, it is very complex. And and I, I think the thing that's interesting when when you have when you realize that Yoko and Cynthia reconciled um, that uh, Julian, upon hearing of John's assassination, uh, said to his mother, Cynthia, I'm going to New York. I went by myself. Cynthia would have gone with him and he insisted to go by himself. What's Julian, I think is what, 17 or 18 at the time. 17 maybe, the same age that John lost his mother. I don't know, I'd have to check on that. But Julian went there to be with his brother, five-year-old Sean. And he he did that. I, I mean, the, those intricacies of, of the changings of roles, the, the um, living through a crisis and then things getting better, the bonds of, of family love, the recognition that life and marriage, especially for famous people, is, isn't... Um, isn't easy and and Julian wanting to be a better parent to Sean perhaps than John 
was capable of being to Julian when, when Julian himself was five. It's, it's all very interesting. Um, and I think the fact that Cynthia, I think, continued to be a strong woman and Yoko always was a strong woman. I think that they're going to raise stronger men. They're going to raise men that aren't going to be bound by those hard and fast rules of masculinity that limit an emotional vocabulary for men to learn and, and, and to, you know, uh, understand themselves. You know, we don't let men understand themselves because we don't really want to want them to understand the roles have been so hard and fast for so long. That's changing now. I really think that, I mean, that has been changing for a while and there's always the exceptions and you're right. It's quite different starting in the fifties than going to the original or like, you know, second wave upheaval of the seventies and then the changes made in the eighties and what's happening now. I don't know. I haven't quite gotten my, my head around it, but I know that through that fifties, seventies, eighties to now, Look at how popular culture has changed in regard to gendering. Look at how marriage, the sociology of marriage and the facts of marriage and how marriage is conducted, you know, the, the, the sort of the real world statistics, if you will, that go into um, discovering how we live at any particular time. That's changed so radically, you know. Um, custody now is, is quite different from what custody used to be uh, when I went through it. Legally, it's different. Um, it's, I, it's, it's been popularized, I think, in a way, uh, militarized almost in a way uh, that it wasn't. The, the custody battles seem to be almost scripted now, whereas uh, mine was new territory, new territory for every, everybody involved. Um, so the changes, you know, those changes have, have happened and they've impacted how we live. No, and I've, I've always felt that Julian, Julian Lennon, at least in the, in his public persona, right. Has always been very mindful and thoughtful about what ha like why he's chosen not to have children why he right like in these ways like you're talking about and that relationship even with sean so uh, what he does in private i don't know i mean but we don't really see a lot of scandal with either of them right, right so they're right. both right they're both raised like you were saying by these very strong women who have um who seem to be very confident and comfortable but yes like have been very thoughtful about those choices that they've made. Yes, and, and, and I, I think both of them should be commended. And it's a shame that Cynthia had to die, but she had been ill for a while. Um, and Yoko, I mean, I, I often, I mean, when I think about it, and I, I write about this in the end chapter of the book, like um, what's going to happen when Paul and Ringo die? I mean, when all the Beatles now are dead, and I often wonder whether Yoko, who's older than both Paul and Ringo, will outlive them. Um, but what I, I, I hope I'm, I don't know. Do I hope I'm alive? I will probably hopefully be alive. I mean, Ringo 
I mean, Paul Ringo could live to be 100. I, I, I mean, we don't know, but it's a question I think that's worth asking because when all the Beatles are dead, and I suppose add to that when Yoko is also dead, that that's, that's a final thing. That is a cut there. That is a, a historical cut with all of Beatlemania. Uh, history will now have you know, enclosed them. And what we do with that history will be an interesting thing. History, you know, things move so so quickly now and people, uh, there's many that care and love the Beatles, but I, I just don't know. It'd be very, inter- I, you know, I won't know because I will have also died. The whole the whole baby boomer rock and roll Beatles generation will have died. It's up to you guys now to sort of uh, see what happens and, and keep the keep the flame burning, if you will. But I think that it's an interesting question because when you grow up with something like the Beatles, the phenomenon of the Beatles, which I will argue till doomsday that they did change the world, right? the phenomenon changed the world. Um, when you grow up with that and you see all the changes, because it wasn't just an Elvis Presley for five years, you know, this has been a lifelong kind of thing. You, you begin to really see the significance of something as simple as music in your life. Something you begin to just to see yourself differently. And I think that that's what happened in the writing I didn't realize until I finished this book how absolutely important Lennon and the Beatles were and that I I hope that other people in the world, it doesn't have to be the Beatles. It can be modern art. It can be chess. It can be pole vaulting for all I care. But oh, pole vault. No, don't quote me on that. No, because I don't. I don't know if that's going to work. <laughs> but, you know, it can be modern art. It can be ballet, it can, whatever. But when something becomes passionate and changes your life and is with you deeply, deeply, deeply with you, it's such a privilege to have that happen, I think. It's a game changer. No, that was like sort of, we've been talking for a while, so one of my final questions I've had for you, right, like that, you know, when you go and you went to buy stamps and the woman did not know who John was, right? Like, (laughs) Even, you know, I'm almost 50 and the Beatles have always like, you know, whether I'm Beatles, huge Beatles fan or not, they're, they've always been like, it's the Beatles, right? The Beatles are the Beatles are the Beatles. That's right, right, right. You know, it's like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and, you know, and they did so many things, you know, in thinking about music. And I'm always, and I, I will have students who are this nostalgic, like, you know, and thinking about wanting to be hippies without really realizing what that means, right? Like going, you know, like loving the Beatles or loving. Um, but I always wonder, like, will they, will there be a point <clears throat> where no one knows who the Beatles are, right? Or doesn't talk about the Beatles, like you're talking about there. Um, and, and like reading when you, you know, that stamp, it was like those times in my life where I see my aging, <laughs> Right. I see my age when you know, even my kids will say it, but, you know, or say something to my students. And I'm like, none of you know what that is. Like oh, everybody's supposed to know what that is. I remember that moment. Yes. It, when I was teaching, we we're 
they didn't get my jokes and I had to explain the jokes. And then the, you, you want something to be instantly recognized. And then you know that that shade has come down on their faces. And then and it's a really tender moment because your job as a teacher is to sort of say, what, what, you don't know that, but to say, listen, my children, and you shall hear it. I will tell you, I will tell you what you've missed. I will tell you all about it. But yes, I have had that moment. I will guarantee you, Rebecca, that you will continue to have that moment and treasure them. Because if it weren't for you, they may not know what knowledge or excitement, you know, you could impart to them. Yeah. And I think of like, this is the same with like music, the Beatles, like, Will there be a point where they're not a band that people talk about? Right. I mean, they're in, they're they're in the canon, so yeah. I think that that will happen. They are hist- I mean, history will not forget them. Whether people will forget them or be so far distant to say, "What's the deal?" You know, I, I saw Beyonce at the Super Bowl. What's the deal? You know, the the Beatles only performed for thirty minutes. And, and they bowed, and after every song they sang, where's the fireworks? Where's the the human sacrifice? I mean, we're, you know, popular culture could move in certain directions here, you know, that we could say, well, where's, you know, I don't know. But yes, um, it, it, in a personal, it, it will be a personal death when people like me die, obviously, you know, because I've remembered so many things um, and been there. The fact that I was there is important uh, as it is in it, for anybody's life where they have been is important. And I have a book, which hopefully will remain on this show. Um, and the Beatles are in history, but the kind of personalizing of the intensity of the experience will be lost because the people who had that experience will no longer be with us. So I'm trying not to be cynical and and answer your question by, yes, there will become a time when people no longer know who the Beatles are. No, I I mean, I think... I'm afraid of that moment. (laughs) Well, when you do, I mean, you just said I wrote it because I think it's really important to think about like that, yes, they'll be in history. History won't forget them, but people might, right? And there's a difference, right? And I think we see that often, but I think that's a good way to think about it. Um, So my, usually my final question, since we've been talking for a while, is if there's anything else you're sort of working on or if you're just sort of promoting the book, if there's, you know, any last promotion you want to sort of throw out there. I really urge people to read the book because since I, I have read a whole lot of books written by and about and for the Beatles, and my book is quite different. And it's important because it's written by a woman and it is Uh, firmly from a a, a female perspective. And that's important because so much of the Beatles continue to be channeled through a male perspective, which is quite different from the female experience of being a Beatles fan and knowing the Beatles. And women still get sort of, um, you know, their names are there. Women have written about the Beatles and often quite well. But it's not comparable, and I'm not after whether it will always be comparable, but it is important to recognize that um, writers such as myself, because of my gender, have something new and important and perhaps even revelatory to say about the Beatles. 
and and so for that reason i think it, uh, and it's a fun book too it's not you know a boring book it's a fun book um to go ahead and read that and and i i hope that readers do what i'm working on now is quite a different project it involves a love affair that my mother my mother was born in 1906 involves a love affair that my mother had with a famous mexican pilot and general in the Mexican Air Force between nine, what I'm assuming is 1928 and 1939. I have a suitcase and always have had in the family a suitcase of the many hundreds of letters that he wrote her in those years. I don't have any letter that she wrote him. Anybody who knows anything about this affair or my mother's earlier life is dead. So I'm really trying to put together who I call the mother in the suitcase and just and through the letters that this man wrote and understand her in comparison to the actual real mother that I had um, who was quite different. Um, this is the time in my life to do this. I want to write this so that I can give my mother something. She's dead. She died when I was 26. Um, in 1929, single young women, 23 years old, did not customarily travel alone and go into Mexico to then live as a mistress of a famous general. And my mother did that. And she visited Mexico again in 1937. The fact that they continued the correspondence for as long as they did, and his letters are magnificent love letters. The fact that they were in love under these conditions astounds me. I think this is a kind of love affair that would not happen today. There would be no reason for it to happen today. Okay, perhaps unless the guy was serving a life term in prison or something and you couldn't, you know, bop away. But no, it's a different time. So um, I'm finishing up my, my, my manuscript of that. Uh, it's quite different from writing John Lennon, but I, I think that the same impulse is there. I want to know my mother better than I did, and I want to love her better than I did when I did know her. And if that means trying to figure out what was going on at a time when I have no idea what was going on, I can imagine her, I can see her through the words that the general wrote, understand her a little bit better. And I'm happy that she, even though it, he died um, in 1939, which must, must have been devastating for her. I'm happy that she had this grand love because I do think it was a grand love. So I'll let you know when that's done and hopefully uh, we can talk again about another book. Yes, that sounds really, I mean, you talk a little bit about that in this book. So yes. that's yeah. really, that's fascinating. Uh, again, so the thank you, this was Sibio Sullivan who wrote My Private Lennon, Explorations from a Fan Who Never Screamed. Thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. Network. This has been a lot of fun and a great pleasure.